Okay, so I'd like to take a, a little bit of time now just to launch us into the theme of this retreat. You may or may not remember the description of it, but I reframed it as an opportunity to strengthen our natural resilience, to strengthen our natural resilience and our capacity to meet life's challenges with more ease, steadiness, even appreciation. And I chose this theme, this frame, because based on my own experience over the last year of dealing with the pandemic and all of those other what we could call pre-existing conditions that I that it intensified, such as the climate crisis and the massive societal injustice that I just named, on top of all those more individual challenges. So just to recognize that probably every one of us here, including me, has been dealing with or is still dealing with some kind of unwelcome change, some kind of unwelcome situation. Does that feel true? Is anybody here just like completely on a pink cloud of well-being at the moment? Maybe not. So I'm guessing most of us have some kind of stress, distress, suffering, dukkha, to use the classic language, that we're dealing with. And the specifics might be different for each of us, but there are likely to be some universal themes. And hopefully there'll be this weekend will be relevant for you no matter what your individual challenges might be right now. So again, just in terms of my own experience over the last year, there were definitely times when I felt waves of groundlessness, of confusion, anxiety, disorientation, resistance. But even in the midst of all that, there was at times a sharpened realization, this is why we practice. This is why we spend all of these hours meditating, why we go on retreats, why we study, study the Dharma, the Buddha's teachings, so that when these inevitable challenges do show up, we have some capacity to navigate them with some degree of ease. Now that doesn't mean, ease doesn't mean easy, but we're fortunate to have this whole array of the Buddha's teachings and practices that do help us deal with shock and do support us to come back to balance more quickly. So, as a result of my own experience of navigating these different challenges, I got curious about what does support this capacity to metaphorically bounce back because, as we probably all know from our own experience, there are times when we don't bounce back so quickly, when we feel brittle, or perhaps at times even shattered by life's challenges. So for this last year, I've been exploring the theme of resilience, what undermines it and what supports it. And particularly these four Brahma-Vihara qualities are such a powerful resource of heart and mind. One that, and they're ones that we can actively develop and strengthen. So, what do I mean by the term resilience? So, in modern psychological terms, it's defined as our capacity to maintain some degree of calm when under pressure and to move on from a crisis without long-lasting negative consequences. 
So that's the psychological definition. But I would go a little further than that and to say that life challenges of all kinds can help us to develop the inner resources not only to survive, but to thrive, to come out of the other side of the crisis stronger, stronger than we were before, with more understanding and more capacity to care for ourselves and for others. Now, it's probably stating the obvious to say that a crisis in and of itself doesn't automatically do this for us. There are plenty of crises. If only it did automatically do that. But unfortunately, it does take some effort on our part to learn how to relate to those challenges in a way that does make them something beneficial. And often the first thing we have to navigate when we turn towards those difficulties is a whole pile of resistance. Not wanting it, pushing it away, trying to ignore, deny it, and so on. So in terms of this exploration of resilience, I've come to think of resistance as being its opposite. So if resilience is a capacity to flex, to flow, to accept, to learn, to grow, resistance is the is tendency to become rigid, to fixate, to shut down, to avoid, to withdraw. So in some ways I use these two terms as a kind of shorthand. So resilience is the capacity to develop skillful qualities of heart and mind, and resistance is all the ways we defend ourselves and stay stuck in those unskillful qualities of heart and mind. So resistance is not always obvious and dramatic. It can also be slightly subtle and sneaky. And one way we can experience it is actually when things are going well. When we're not in some kind of crisis, it's very easy to think, I've got plenty of time, I should go on retreat, but yeah, next year, maybe the year after. And we might like the idea of having a more committed Dharma practice. We might know that regular meditation is good for us, but there's always something else that seems a little more important. So we just cruise along in our default patterns until some kind of challenge, some metaphorical wake-up call emerges and we suddenly realize how we have been stuck in complacency and that our usual default ways of doing things don't work so well. So this wake-up call can reveal the flaws in our habitual approach to life. And if we have any wisdom at all, we understand there isn't a firm foundation to rely on. And that sudden recognition of our vulnerabilities can motivate us to reorient ourselves to what's truly important. So in some ways, every one of you here has enough wisdom to recognize this, so you probably wouldn't have signed up for this retreat. Even so, it can be humbling to recognize how easily, again speaking for myself, we can be seduced by the comforts and the routines of everyday life. But this was true even for the Buddha. Before he became a Buddha, before he attained complete liberation or nibbana, Even he needed a wake-up call to shake him out of complacency. 
So I'm guessing, do most of you know the, the legend of the Buddha's life story? Anybody never heard it before? Okay, so all of you have some familiarity with it. So you know, the legend describes how as a young man he was able to live a life of complete luxury, complete hedonism. But when he got to his late 20s, he was starting to get tired of all of that self-indulgence. And he began sneaking out of the palace at night to see what was going on in the nearby town. And during those secret visits, it was said that he was deeply shocked to encounter what had become known as the four heavenly messengers. So the first was a very old person. Then he met a very sick person. Then he saw a corpse. And on meeting these first three heavenly messengers, the Buddha-to-be suddenly realized that he himself was also subject to aging, to illness, to death. And no amount of physical or material or financial comfort could prevent him from experiencing those same processes. But then on his last nighttime visit to town, he met the fourth heavenly messenger, which is a contemplative or a spiritual speaker, sorry, a spiritual seeker. And it's said that that person's serene face and their calm demeanor inspired him to renounce his life of luxury and to set out on a spiritual quest. One eventually solved his existential crisis, and after seven years of intensive practice, he attained Nibbana, being complete freedom of heart and mind. So obviously that's a legend, it's a metaphorical or mythical story, but if we look back over our own lives, each of us here could probably identify some kind of heavenly messenger, some kind of wake-up call, that did shake us out of our complacency and bringing it back to tonight's theme encouraged us to want to develop more resilience and to want to release resistance. Does that feel true? There's something that prompted you at some point to realize there must be a better way of living life. It doesn't have to be so painful. Is that making sense to people? Yeah. So as support for that, I'd like to take a few minutes now just to give an overall framework of the four Brahmavihara practices. Because as you know, these are specific meditation techniques that do help to develop kindness or metta, compassion or karuna, appreciative joy or mudita, and equanimity, or upekka. And these four practices work beautifully together to both soften resistance and strengthen resilience. So we're going to be taking a kind of a whirlwind tour of all four of them this weekend. And just before we dive into that, I want to say a little bit more about the term Brahma-Vihara itself. It's sometimes translated as the divine abodes or the sublime abidings or the heavenly realms or the boundless states. And all of those are slightly, at least to my ears, slightly awkward terms. So generally I prefer to leave Brahma Vihara untranslated because 
it's a difficult phrase to translate into English. That first part, the word Brahma, referred to a kind of god that was worshipped by the Brahmin tradition in India at the time of the Buddha. And we don't really have any equivalent of Brahma in our own culture. And so that's why it's sometimes translated as heavenly or sublime instead. And in the second part, the term Vihara means dwelling place. So Brahma Vihara on one level literally means the dwelling place of Brahma, or the dwelling place of the gods. But what I'd like to highlight here is this sense of dwelling or abiding. So this aspect of Vihara as meaning home. Because we can think of these four states as being our true home, our true refuge. Because when our hearts and minds are not assailed by stress, by distress, by difficulty, this is where we naturally abide, we naturally dwell. And just like with our actual home, there's a sense of ease in those dwelling places. They're a place or a state where we can feel relaxed we can feel comfortable, we can feel who we more truly are. So I'm assuming all of you have had some teachings on these four Brahma-Vihara before. Again, just to check, has anybody never had any introduction to the four Brahma-Vihara? Great. So for some of you, we might be going over familiar territory at this point. But I'm guessing that if you have had an introduction, probably the one you heard most about is metta, or kindness, friendliness. And perhaps the other three qualities are named, but in my own experience they're usually not covered in nearly as much detail. And this is a pity, because when all four of these Brahma-Vihara are developed together, they give us a lot of steadiness, a lot of resilience. So one analogy for this is like a four-ply or four-strand piece of rope. If we have just one strand of rope, it's easy to pull and break. But if we have four strands of rope together, obviously there's a lot more strength in that. And so working all four of these qualities together, they really help to develop a supple, responsive strength of heart and mind. The other downside of focusing too much just on metta and not as much on compassion, appreciative joy and equanimity is that people can develop the misperception that metta is supposed to be our default response to everything. But depending on what's going on in our lives, one of the other four qualities might actually be more appropriate and actually sometimes metta is not the most appropriate response. I'll say more about that later. But for now, just to highlight that these four states, beautiful states of heart and mind, are not only beneficial in and of themselves, they also really support our insight practice. And they provide that support in at least two ways. So to use an analogy of physical health, they act as both prevention and cure. So these Brahma-Viharas act as preventatives by making the heart and mind resilient, as I've been emphasizing. And when we have that resilience, we're much less easy to be attacked by the afflictive state. 
So states such as anger and fear, boredom, jealousy, judgment, loneliness, despair and so on, they just can't get their hooks into us as easily. So metaphorically, I think of these Brahma-viharas as being like vitamin C for our emotional immune system. So you might know that in your own experience. Uh, If you've had the experience of being in a good mood, for example, and you might notice that little things that otherwise might have irritated or depressed us just feel to bounce off. And if we look more closely at what we were calling that good mood, it's probable that there were some Brahma-viharas present in there, maybe some sense of appreciation or kindness or equanimity. So when we're in a good mood, we can have that experience of things just barely causing a ripple. And then probably also the opposite. Have you had the experience of being in a bad mood? You know, in English we talk about waking up on the wrong side of the bed. And we're in a bad mood and that negative mind state tends to amplify everything. And little things really um, catch us. But even right there, when we recognize that, whatever the afflictive states are that have hooked us, we can bring in the Brahma-viharas as antidotes. So they're preventatives and they're antidotes. So for example, metta, or good will, is the direct antidote to ill will or aversion. Compassion is the antidote to suffering, to pain of all kinds emotional and physical. An appreciative joy is the antidote to envy or jealousy. And lastly, equanimity is the antidote to all forms of reactivity, of imbalance and bias. So right there you might see these four working together as antidotes and get a sense of how they're different flavors of love. And all four of them with different facets of love, they balance each other out. So that whole process starts with metta, with kindness. And when, and it's said that when metta turns towards what's going well, or sorry, when it turns towards what's painful, it flowers with compassion. On the other hand, when metta turns towards what's going well, it flowers as appreciative joy. And when compassion and appreciative joy are in balance, we naturally get equanimity. So one way I think of the relationship between those four is as being arranged around the points of a diamond. So if you want to take a look from a... If you think of a diamond being that kind of square shape, The bottom point of the diamond is metta because it's the foundation that the others emerge from. And then, as I said, when metta turns towards difficulty, it becomes compassion. So we can locate compassion at one of the side points. When that same metta turns towards what's going well, it flowers as appreciative joy or mudita. So compassion and appreciative joy are at the two side points of the diamond. And then when compassion and appreciative joy come together and are equally in balance, we get equanimity at the pinnacle, at the top of the diamond. Because equanimity ultimately is a heart-mind that's completely in balance, 
equally available to what are known as life's 10,000 sorrows and its 10,000 joys. So one reason I use this metaphor is because this, these are four facets of a skillful heart and mind. And just like a diamond, when the heart and mind is perfectly clear, it responds automatically in the appropriate way, with kindness, with compassion, with appreciative joy, with equanimity. Just like a diamond naturally responds to light. So sometimes the diamond flashes red, blue, yellow, and all of these qualities, these colors are possible because of the diamond's purity. So these four Brahmaviharas are helping the mind and the heart to become more clear, more open, more available. And as the Brahmavihara practices get stronger, we're constantly responding to these different situations in an appropriate way. And so we can use these different facets, flavors of love to consciously balance out our practice. For example, if the metta practice started to feel a little bit dry, maybe a little bit superficial, we might change to compassion practice for a while, because turning to life's difficulties and challenges can help to sharpen our motivation. On the other hand, if we are landing too deeply in all of that suffering and we study to get bogged down by it, we might want to move to the opposite side of the diamond and to turn towards appreciative joy, to mudita. And this is kindness to turn towards what's going well, towards other people's happiness and good fortune, and that can help uplift the heart and the mind. At times, though, this mudita might start to feel a little bit fizzy or ungrounded, and so we might need to remember the truth that everything changes deliberately come back to a more balanced mind state and orient equanimity to upeka, to connect with that wisdom of non-reactivity. So we're going to have time to explore each of these qualities over the weekend. Just for now, for just a few moments, just a few more minutes, I'd like to focus a bit on metta, kindness or goodwill because it is the foundation that the other three develop out of. And it's probably the one you have the most familiarity with so far. So I'm guessing you're familiar with the traditional method of reciting phrases of well-wishing and then offering that well-wishing to different categories of people. So, for example, bringing to mind a good friend and just wishing, may you be safe and healthy and so on. So, as I think most of you know, that's the traditional way that metta is taught. And for some people it's not so easy. So just to name it, the words can get in the way. They might start to feel dry, mechanical, not authentic. And we might start to pressure ourselves to try to manufacture some kind of emotional response that doesn't feel natural or genuine. And if that doesn't work, it can easily bring up afflictive emotions the very opposite of the states that we're trying to develop. And I just mentioned this because, as I said at the start, I was initially a meta-skeptic, and it was partly because I had that experience of 
sitting down to try and develop oceanic loving-kindness and finding myself just seething with petty resentments or bored out of my brain or just completely numb and shut down. So I just offer that as reassurance because rather than thinking that the meta practice doesn't work or that there's something fundamentally flawed about us, I'm hoping to offer this weekend a inviting you to be creative with these practices. We'll be trying out a range of different practices and I just invite you to explore them and see what might work for you. So in some ways these practices are designed to show us what gets in the way. Because if we can't see it, we can't do anything about it. So it is quite normal as I just mentioned, to find ourselves touching into ill will or aversion or boredom and so on. And the, in the way that Aikido move, the trick is to try to have kindness for the non-kindness. So rather than judging it or resisting it, seeing if even that can be folded into our metta practice. And given that we can come across these obstacles to matter, it can at times take courage to do this practice. So that's the last aspect of matter I want to highlight before we do some actual practice. Just to name that sometimes people are afraid of cultivating kindness because they fear that it might make them weak or that people will take advantage of them. So just to keep in mind that all of these practices are supported by wisdom. And it's this wisdom that protects us from falling into what we might think of as foolish kindness. By that, I mean perhaps denying our own needs or enabling other people's dysfunction out of a misunderstanding of what true metta is. Because in the Buddha's teachings, we need to include ourselves equally with others. So if we're practicing metta in a way that's harmful to ourselves, then it's not true metta. So wisdom invites us to keep checking if what we're doing is beneficial to ourselves as well as to others. And if it's not, to change the way we're practicing metta or perhaps move to one of the other Brahma-viharas. So again, I'll be exploring all of this in the sessions to come, but hopefully that's enough information for us to get started. I'd like to... uh, offer us a little, just a short guided meta practice now. But just before we do that, let's take five minutes. We've been sitting for a while now. So let's just take five minutes to stand, to stretch, to take care of the body. So thank you for your attention. Please come back here at five minutes past the hour. Thanks everyone. <laughs>